Hey there, Annie and Julie here. We just wanted to pop in real quick before we dive into this episode and announce our new show name. We're excited to announce that we're rebranding the Investing for Good podcast as the Life and Money Show. Now, this new name reflects the broad focus of our episodes and guests thus far and allows us to tell even more stories about living a meaningful and intentional life by design while also making an impact. We're extremely grateful for your support and listenership as we've grown this podcast and are excited to begin this new chapter so we can bring you even more valuable stories and insights. With that, let's dive into the episode. With that base knowledge of understanding, that's what's lacking you know, in so many people that I talk to is they want to talk about the difference between a Roth IRA and a regular IRA. But really, we need to get down to the basics of, you know, what's our plan? What are we trying to save for, et cetera? Then we can figure those things out. You're listening to The Life and Money Show, a podcast that brings you the stories and strategies of people who are living a meaningful and intentional life by design, building true wealth for their families, and impacting the world around them. And now here are your hosts, Annie Dickerson and Julie Lamb. Hey, hey, everyone. Annie Dickerson here together with my awesome co-host, Julie Lamb. Julie, how are you today? I'm doing pretty good, Annie. Pretty good. We're at my house right now. All the rage is Christmas presents. I guess it's the funniest thing. I guess my kids are hitting that age when they're feeling that independence. They've made some investments with me. You know, they got some money rolling in from allowance and I guess they're feeling pretty good and everyone wants to go out and spend, you know, they want to enjoy that feeling of like spending. We've been Christmas shopping and just getting ready for the holidays. Fun. Yeah. One thing that we recently did, because our kids kept asking us like, can we buy this? Can we buy so we put Amazon on the mm-hmm. app on their iPads, but we didn't link it to an account so they can't buy anything, mm. but they can go <laughs> and they can search and they can look at how much things cost, which is uh-huh. like for kids. It's like, they have no concept. They're like Lego said, does it cost like $5, a hundred dollars? You a know, they yeah. yeah, yeah. They have no mm-hmm. concept. So now, mm-hmm. and it, te- plus it teaches reading too. Cause then they're oh. like, and I taught them about how the layout of each product page, like where to find the pictures, where to find the reviews and like what the reviews mean. And so they've been really into that. It's a little bit of consumerism, but I think they're learning some things too. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. That is so funny. Yeah. It's funny to watch them because they're so excited to spend. You can see it's almost like sugar rushing through them. They're just like excitement and spending and spending. And one of our previous guests that we've had on the show, Ryan Lee, he said this once before, and I've been pounding this into my kids, he always says, you know, with great reward comes great responsibility. And so I actually have it up on our whiteboard in the kitchen to remind them that yes, it feels good to spend, it feels great to buy gifts, and it feels you feel like in charge, and 
and you feel like ah, I get on top of the world, right? But the other side of that is that there is the responsibility side and really understanding where is my money going? What does it mean to me? How much is how long is it going to take me to pay this back? And really understanding the flip side of that spending mentality and the joy and the excitement of all of that. And so we've really been spending a lot of time talking about that too. So yeah, and you know, as adults, it's like, it's hard to go out there and navigate all the temptations of spending Mm -hmm. versus saving versus investing versus all the different advice Mm -hmm. you get from friends, from family, from coworkers, from employers, from financial planners, from bankers. It's like, how do you know what you're Mm -hmm. supposed to do, what you're not supposed to do? You try one thing and then it's years before you see a result. And then during that time, it's just, it can be a mess and it can be Mm -hmm. overwhelming and daunting to navigate, which is exactly why we invited our guest today, Rob Schultz. He's the founder and president of Schultz Wealth and the author of the book, Thoughts on Things Financial. It's a great (laughs) book, fantastic guide. And Rob is just a wealth of knowledge. He's been advising people as a financial planner for decades now. And he specializes in stocks, but he also, his clients also invest in real estate and he's based in Texas. And he's just got a great holistic view on the whole landscape. And in the show, he talks a lot about how to navigate finding a financial planner and the purpose of financial planning and how to think about financial planning as it relates to you and your life goal. Yeah. And I love that we were able to kind of dive in a little bit, talk about kids, bringing children into the conversation of money. As everyone on the nose that listens to our show, we always talk about children and finances and education around all of that. And so we were able to kind of pick his brain a little bit about that. And the one thing that he had said was let them make some mistakes. And I just really resonated with me because I'm such a control freak and I love to have control over everything. And so to be able to reframe the idea of how to help my kids learn with this runway of like, go out there and make mistakes is kind of a novel idea for me. And I love that. And I think that especially as it relates to finances, like what a great time in their lives when the consequences aren't so significant for them to be able to learn through their mistakes and make them now before it's real world, real life stuff when it has to do with the difference between sleeping on the street or having a roof over your head kind of a thing. So that was an interesting point that we talked about during the show. Yeah, I loved all of his advice. I love that he's got four kids and he talks about how each of them are different. I loved hearing that as well. And so for all of our listeners, if you are new to financial planning, or especially if you are new to the world of real estate investing, we got you covered. And so if you're new to the world of passive real estate investing in particular, be sure to grab a free copy of our book, Investing for Good. It'll give you a really good soup to nuts intro about what it's all about. And the best news is we've got a free copy just for you. Just text the word book to 41404 to get all the details. And before we dive into the episode, I wanted to highlight a listener comment. This one comes from Paul 3475. And Paul says, I love listening to this show. I must admit I was skeptical at first, but after listening to a few episodes, I'm 
hooked. I love the RV camping stories. <laughs> <laughs> LOL. So, I mean, Paul, that is exactly, I think that was Julie's in my experience when we started investing in real estate too, skeptical at first, then you got to dip your toes in, try it. And then you see what a huge impact it makes on the world as well as on your own personal finances and wealth. So I love it. I love that you're hooked and hopefully many of our listeners are getting hooked as well. All right. So without further ado, here is our conversation with Rob Schultz. Rob, welcome to the show. How are you? I'm very good. It's so good to be here. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. Thank you for being here. Now, Rob, for more than 25 years now, you have been committed to helping everyday people take control of their money and attain real world financial success. And I know that you attended the University of Texas on a Navy ROTC scholarship where you studied accounting. And while serving as a surface warfare officer, which you'll have to tell us what that means, you found your calling counseling sailors on desperately needed personal finance and money management issues. So start by taking us back to that time. Tell us more about what you were seeing among your fellow sailors or your own personal finances at the time and what drew you to dive in and to help them. Oh, you bet. First of all, that was a long time ago. So, you know, going back and, and thinking about it is, is fun, but, but wow. So being an accounting major at the University of Texas and then going into the Navy was kind of weird, right? Most naval officers are engineers and I was an accountant. So that was, so maybe I had a different take on things, but one of the very first things that happened when I got on my ship is I started talking to one of my sailors who had gotten himself into a terrible bind with a, a very, very high interest tote the note loan on a car and just having being a financial kind of guy already, it upset me. And I just grabbed him. We went straight down there. I mean, my uniform and fixed it. Right. So right off the bat, I would say that that's the attitude I kind of took with sailors and in the Navy, that's a cultural thing to not only take care of, they're your employees, but they're more than that. Mm -hmm. When you're in the military, you try to take care of each other as best you can all the way through the whole person, mm -hmm. not just the person that works for you, but also their family and et cetera. So it was really a fun experience to be able to, to do that and, and help guys and gals and families that, that I felt really needed financial help to be better sailors, be better husbands and fathers and, and, and things like that. So it was really cool. And I think I did. I found my calling kind of doing that. And then when I got out of the Navy, when I got out of the Navy, that's, I knew that's what I wanted to do. So, yeah. So it sounds like it really came from a place of compassion and sort of organic, it grew organically out of just the care that you had for the people around you and seeing them almost getting taken advantage of because they hadn't made their personal finances, maybe a focus or a priority. And then you saw that. And because of your training and your background, you were able to step in and help them navigate those situations. So I love that. Yeah. And isn't that fun? Because I think most people that are in the business of trying to help people financially probably feel that way. And it's just fun. I mean, if you do this for a living, 
I know you all know this. It's just fun to help people and to watch them succeed and have success. It's just awesome. Yeah. So fast forward. So you started out helping the sailors around you and you sort of found that you had a knack for it and calling. And so then what happened after that? Well, after that, we came back to Texas and I was like, okay, how do I do this? And I didn't really know. So I went to work for a large insurance company. That was good because they trained me. I got my licenses and things like that. But it wasn't long before I realized that I wasn't working for my clients, these people. I was more working for the company. And so after really a very short period of time, like three or four years, I had extricated myself from that and had started working more as what we call in the industry, more on an independent basis, where I was helping the clients directly instead of necessarily working for a company, if that makes sense. Yeah. So tell us a little bit more about that, because I think when people set out to find a financial planner, they, they have no idea where to start. And they hear terms like fee simple, certified financial planner, and they're like, I don't, I don't know where to start. Do I go to my bank? Do I go to my friends? Do I Google online? What type of financial services or financial planning do you do? And how do you recommend people find somebody trustworthy that they can work with? Yeah. You're exactly right. I mean, it's very easy to get caught up and it's just a huge industry, right? I mean, there's just so, I mean, it's a huge industry. And and the first thing that you want to do is go online and find something. And it's usually going to be a large financial services company and go, well, I can trust these guys. They, they sponsor my golf tournament, whatever. But really that's, in my opinion, at least that's not the way to go about it because then you really are, you're working with somebody who is basically there to work for the company and sell you products. And it doesn't have to be that way. You can find somebody who's actually going to work for you and you're going to pay them to help you. And in the past, probably 25 years ago, when I started, it was really hard at lower income levels or asset levels to find somebody like that. But that's not true at all anymore. Mm-hmm. You can find, and we call it fee only, registered investment advisory, somebody who basically does not take a commission at all, but who works for the client as a fiduciary. That's, those are the key terms that you're mm-hmm. looking for. And easier and easier to find somebody who can work with you that way. That's what I encourage people to do. Mm-hmm. And it's very hard to determine whether somebody's working for commission or working as a fee only. The best way actually is to really kind of go online and there's a kind of a club of us people. Okay. And, and you can go, go online and you can, you can basically search through the National Association, NAPFA, (laughs) N-A-P-F-A, National Association of Personal Financial Advisors. So NAPFA is... When I think of financial advisors, I think of taking a nap too. So I think NAPFA is pretty fitting, actually. (laughs) That's the way we can remember probably NAPFA. Yes, no question. But what NAPFA does is, is they, in order to be a member of that organization, you have to jump through all the hoops that you want in an advisor, meaning no, no conflicts of interest from the standpoint of commissions or anything like that. And somebody who has also gone through a rigorous process, a peer review of a financial plan and continuing education, et cetera, and so forth. Only 1% of the advisors in the country are part of NAPFA. So yeah, that's what I tell people to do these days. Just go look in there. If I had a family member who 
I couldn't work with for whatever reason, that's what I would tell them to do. Go look for somebody in their area that's an APFA member and, and go from there. What do you have to do to become a member of that organization? The first thing you have to do is you have to basically not have a securities license. How crazy is that, right? But when you're fee only, you generally, if you're a CFP, you don't have to have like a series seven or any of those types of licenses. So you're not selling anything. So you have to prove that you don't work on commission in any way, shape or form. You have to prove that you don't even have any ownership of any company that charges a commission, like own an insurance company. Mm. So you can't have stuff on the side or anything like that. That's the biggest Mm -hmm. hurdle because it's very common to have all those things. And then second of all, you have to put together a financial plan and have it peer reviewed, you know, so that you, you have to prove that you know what you're doing. You have to be a CFP, certified mm-hmm. financial planner. You have to do continuing education with them in addition to the continuing education you do as a CFP. So it's pretty stringent. You mentioned, as you were talking, you mentioned conflict of interest when it comes to commission-based. And so this is something that took me a while to understand because back in the day before I got into real estate investing, when I was just, when I was in my 20s, I was helping my mom with her finances and I'm knowing nothing about investing or personal finance. I said, well, I I guess I need a financial planner or somebody to help me figure this out. And so I asked a friend, they referred somebody to me. And I remember on that call, they were trying to sell me an annuity for my mom because income for life, all this jazz, right? So, and then I said, well, let me ask you a question. How do you get paid? And they said, well, you don't pay us a fee. We get paid on the back end after you buy this product or invest in this service. I'm like, at that time, I was like, oh, that's so clever. That's so great. So I don't have to pay them a fee. I save the money of paying them a fee. How great is that? And because of that, well, not because only of that, but that was one of the factors that led me to then follow through on what they were telling me. But now thinking back over that, I'm like, oh, wait, that is a conflict of interest. So talk more about that and the cost up front of the fee-only service versus the long-term costs of potentially working with somebody who's on commission. Yeah, Annie, that's a great story. And I hear that over and over and over and over again from people. I mean, just that story, which just exactly the way you described it happens so often. And you know, commission's not bad. I mean, we're in a capitalist society and a whole lot of people get paid by the company that they work for. I mean, what's wrong with that, right? (laughs) But the problem comes, in my opinion, what happens when we get into the financial services world is everything is sold on a consultative basis. Okay. So when you had that situation, they were advising you, right? On what to do. Oh, you should do this annuity, right? It's advice. Okay. And that's the problem is in my industry, everybody sells by providing advice. And that's obviously very conflicted advice when selling you a high commission product, which an annuity is. It's a very high commission product. It's very hard to get out of, okay? Once you're in it, there's a long surrender period, years. So oh, if yeah. you, oh man, I mean, when I got my mom out of it, she basically broke even for all the years that she was in it. And I thought, man, if I had just invested her money in real estate all this time, she would have made so much more. But yeah, it's, it was a hassle to get out of. Yeah, it's really tough. That's the problem is that everybody looks exactly the same because they're all wanting to provide advice. And when I provide advice, 
I'm getting paid to do that. Whereas with somebody who is getting paid a commission, they're not necessarily getting paid to provide you advice. They're being paid to sell you a product, but you can't tell the difference. And the crazy thing is most advisors are duly licensed to do one or the other, really to do both. And I call them hat switchers in the book. Mm -hmm. You know, I talk about it. And so I can put on a commission hat and sell you an annuity, then I can take it off and then sell you an asset-based fiduciary product. Mm -hmm. That's crazy to me. I don't understand why let people do that, but that's what they do. And so on the fiduciary side, the way you'll be able to tell is that you'll actually see what it's costing. And it's either going to cost a planning fee of some type, right? So I'm going to say, well, I'm going to do a plan for you. Here's what I'm going to deliver to you as far as the recommendations, et cetera, and so forth. And it's going to cost you X amount of money. And you're going to write me a check for that when we're done. Easy, right? Or I'm going to manage money for somebody and put it all together and handle it for them completely report back to them, of course, their performance, et cetera. And then we're going to charge a percentage of that as what's called an assets under management or AUM charge. Generally around 1%, it can be a little bit more, it can be less, but that's a very, that's the most common way to pay somebody like me is to just pay a percentage of the assets for it to just be handled for you. Does that help? Yeah, ab- okay. absolutely. And so walk us through, because I haven't worked with a lot of financial planners. After that one, I was like, okay, <laughs> I can maybe figure this out on my own. But so walk us through, what does the process look like? You mentioned they pay you a fee, you build a plan. What sorts of questions are you asking them? What sorts of information should they be ready with when they're working with somebody to create a financial plan like this? Yeah. And it's going to be different because when you work with with a financial planner, everybody has their own process to a certain degree. But here, what happens is it all starts with some financial statement. All companies, all good companies have financial statements, right? They have a financial statement and a balance sheet, okay? Profit and loss balance sheet. Well, I think all good families should have financial statements, okay? And I don't mean your bank checkbook. I mean, like a personal financial statement that shows where we list out all of your assets and all of your liabilities, and then a personal cash flow. Also, some people call it a budget, but people don't like that term. So <laughs> I use cash flow. <laughs> but a cash flow is where we find out okay, how much income is coming in from your investments, but also from W 2 income, that kind of thing. And then what's your burn rate? I call it the burn rate. How much are you having to spend every month to feed your family and, and take care of things? And then, you know, we're looking for what I call black numbers at the end, right? We're looking for a positive number. And that's where it all starts with us. We're always going to start right there, get a good snapshot of where this family is. Mm -hmm. And doing this for a long time, that tells me a lot of information, a lot of really good information about how we can help that family achieve what they want to achieve. I can imagine. I mean, I, I, I'm sure there's so many people out there who are just sort of navigating blind. You know, they just pay off their credit card bills every month. They pay their rent or they pay their mortgage. And as long as the savings account may be staying steady or growing a little, they're like, okay, that's fine. And we had this experience too. We were just going through, especially in our 20s, you know, we we're just like trying to pay off all the bills. Like that was our main priority. We didn't have a bigger picture 
of, okay, where's the growth happening? Where should we invest more? Where, you know, what's our burn rate? I love that. And we've dabbled here and there with the budgets, but budgets are hard, man. Oh, budgets are. are hard. You have to have a lot of discipline to stick with those and to not only to stick with them, but to to modify them over time as your family and your lifestyle changes, I've found. So anyway, I have some personal growth there myself. But anyway, <laughs> so you start with sort of the PNL or the financial statement for the family. And then from there, can you tell us about some common issues or some common recommendations that you make? I mean, is every single financial plan that you make completely custom or there are like buckets of recommendations that you make based on income or where they are in life? Oh yeah. Everybody's plan is different. And but we have software. That's what gives us a huge advantage of professional financial planners because we have software that we use that helps us because used to a long time ago we used to almost calculate all this stuff by hand and you know with an abacus and not, <laughs> not, not that far back but yeah in dos right big oh, black yes. screen with, yeah lotus one two three whatever but yeah financial planning software does a lot of the work for you but it's still very complicated to the point where you have to be able to read what it's telling you and why it's telling you what it's telling you, if that makes mm -hmm. sense. So what happens is we'll we'll try to figure out where you what you're wanting to accomplish. Annie, I love the way you said, hey, you know, you're just trying to stay, keep your head above water sometimes at some stages in life. It's so true. But the ones that I feel like that if you have a plan and that you're you're keeping your head above water, but you're also kind of and I use this in the book called sight, because I used to do triathlons. And when you're swimming in open water, man, you just have your head down. And if you don't lift your head up every once in a while, you have no idea where you're going. Okay. You'll just go in a circle because nobody swims in a straight line. If every once in a while you sight, so you lift your head up and you look for that buoy that you're swimming towards. If you just do that, you get so much further down the road, right? And that's what really planning is about. It's about just trying to get everybody's head up out of the water. It's like, okay, let's try to see where it is we're trying to get to. And that's what the financial plan does. It's really complicated though, because you have so many things going on. You have kids that you need to get educated. At the same time, you've got emergency and opportunities coming up that you need to have money for retirement. Well, that's just a big number. And sometimes it's really hard, very stressful to think about it and talk about it. And all those are kind of different series of cash flows is what I call them. Because each one of those components has a huge effect on what the final outcome is going to be. And we're almost kind of guessing about all of it too. Well, that makes you feel good, doesn't it? <laughs> but you know, you don't know exactly what's going to happen in any of these areas, but we get close enough to where at least we can kind of see that buoy out there. We can go, okay. So this is where I need to be pointing. So I'm going to set all these things in place. Now I'm going to get my head back down in the water. I'm going to start swimming again. Mm. No? And that, that's what it feels like when you're doing this stuff right, I think. Yeah, I love that analogy. Sort of picking your head up out of the water every once in a while, make sure you're still on track, but then putting your head back down and doing the actual work. Okay, so is a financial plan something that you go out and get once in your lifetime? And if so, like, when do you do that? Or are you supposed to check in periodically when you lift your head above water and you look at that buoy? Do you recommend people check in every few months, every few years during certain life stages? Tell us a little bit more about that. Yeah, you bet. And it's different for different people, different planners, but our cycle is every six months. 
quarterly is too often. A lot of financial advisors look for a quarterly update. I just think that's too much. And it kind of falls in the category, Annie, when you were talking a while ago about budgeting, it, this hit me because you can't monitor and swim at the same time. And I think a lot of people do that. They, they're like, okay, well, I know I have to do this. You have all these things that you're worrying about every single month, no fun at all. So what we try to get our clients to do is just pick their head up every six months. And in between, go do your thing. You've got a burn rate. You've got the amount of money that you spend. It is what it is to a certain degree, isn't it? And then we come back and we monitor it. We see if we're going the right direction. If we're not, maybe we need to talk about that. But in most cases, it's not really an issue, especially if we're going through and we're identifying how much you're spending in different areas and you're spending based upon your values. It's no big deal. We just kind of make sure that there's enough going in some of the other areas to where you're going to be okay. So answer is every six months for us. That's what we feel like. And maybe even every year for a big update on the plan. And then the other meeting that we have, we may be talking about some other things. Mm -hmm. Okay. That makes sense. And as far as that long-term goal, I'm curious for your clients, is it, do most people come to you and they ask for like a plan to get them to a comfortable retirement? Are they looking to quit their job and start a business, create passive income? What are some of those overarching goals that you're, you've seen people aim for? Yeah. All of that. Everybody comes in here and has all kinds of really cool goals. That's what's great about this country and about just there's a lot of opportunity to kind of go out there and do what you want to do. As long as you can verbalize it, that's what a plan's about. Saying it out loud. There's a lot, there's a lot of power in that. Say it out loud right there with me, your spouse. Okay, it's out there now. Now, now we're going to put it to pen and paper. And it doesn't matter what that is. If, if trying to create some passive income, that's great. If a lot of times it's maybe sometimes it's a backup plan. You've got a plan for some passive income, some things going on real estate wise or something along those lines, or maybe you have a business and the plan is to transition the business, but we'll also have kind of a backup plan where we're saving money in a 401k or IRAs or something like that to where even if things quite don't go the way you, you hope they would, you're still going to be okay. So sometimes that's part of it. Sometimes it's a lot of times it's a multi-transitional deal. People don't necessarily just retire at age 65 or 67 anymore. What they do is they may take at a certain point and they may take it down a notch. So they've been working really hard. It's like, man, when I get to be about you know, 55, 58, I still want to work because I love what I do and all that kind of stuff, but I don't want to work as hard as I'm working right now. And so we can run those plans that way. And, and people really like that. I'm curious to know kind of on the flip side of that question, what's kind of the number one thing or maybe the top three problems that you see or when people come to you that they're dealing with in their financial planning life or lack of it? What are some of those things? Yeah, some of the challenges. I don't know if there's a top three, but I can I can think of some some examples. Well, you know, kids are expensive. Oh and yes. <laughs> I think a lot of our own personal financial health as parents has to do with how well we communicate with our kids, expectations, et cetera, around money. Because I see a lot of parents that spend maybe more than they should in areas, whether it's kiddos that are still in the house or continuing to try to launch or whatever it may be. That's one. And that's why we try to be as multi-generational as we can, where we want to talk to these kids at different mm -hmm. stages when they get their first car, 
when they go off to college and then when they get their job to make sure that they're making the right decisions and they understand money in a certain way. Otherwise, a lot of times it can become a real drain on the parents. I see Mm -hmm. that. Talk to us a little bit about that. I'm curious. My kids are still fairly young, but talk to us a little bit about that in case we have listeners who have children who are in the 15 to 18 year old range and they're about to head off into adulthood and having these big people responsibilities, right? Of having rent or having to buy a car or things like that. What are some of the things that you advise them? And as parents, I mean, what, what more do we want than for our kids to be successful, right? So mm-hmm. it ends up being a, a huge topic. And it's a whole section in my book. A couple of sections, I talk about this stuff and my philosophy on it. So yeah, kids that age, first, you have to recognize that they have no clue what things cost. And this is funny, you'll love this. So sometimes what you can do is you can say, all right, Johnny, we're going to do a budget. Okay. And they go, oh yeah. Okay. And, and then you say, well, so now you have a car, you need gas and all these kinds of things. Why don't you write out for me kind of how much you think you need a month and then just shut up right there and <laughs> let them write that out. And you're going to get a kick how <laughs> clueless they are about how much things cost. They're going to go, oh yeah, you know, 75 bucks a month will be great. I'll be fine. And then obviously work with them to help them understand how much things cost. Mm-hmm. And then don't use the budget as this is another one. As parents, we'd like to control. We like to take them and shape them, right? But the best thing that you can have them do when they're that age is go ahead and make some really bad mistakes financially. Because at that age, bad ones aren't that bad. Later, they're a real problem, right? So mm-hmm. you want them to get that out of the out of the way. So kind of give them enough rope to go out there and and kind of make some mistakes. Mm-hmm. So for instance classic kid with a new car and they need gas money, right? But then they also have this freedom and they just love to go out to eat. They're exploring a whole new, beautiful teenage culinary out there, right? (laughs) And and so they go out to eat with their friends and spend all the money that they need and they have no gas, Mm -hmm. right? And then they can't go anywhere. Don't bail them out. Don't bail them out. Say, hey, you know what? You had the amount of money that you'd thought this through for the month. You would have been fine. I'm sorry. You get your allowance again on the first and you can do this just just like I do. Mm Because if I do that, then the whole family doesn't eat second half of the Mm -hmm. month, right? Yeah, I love that. I'm in the process. So my eldest daughter is almost nine and we are doing Christmas shopping right now. And she wanted to buy everybody in the family Christmas gifts. And I thought, that's really nice of you, honey. (laughs) (laughs) And so I said, I want you to think about how much you're spending. And then let's look at your investments and let's look and see how much money is coming in from your investments. And then look at see how much you're getting from your allowance from your chores around the house. And let's Let's add all of that up and let's see how much you're making and how long it's going to take you to pay all of this off. And when we added all of that up and we did all of the math, I'm like, so it looks like, honey, it's going to take you a year to pay off these things just for Christmas presents, right? And she's like, ooh. And it really made her think. But I really love the suggestion of letting them, giving them a little bit of leeway because I'm a little bit of a control freak. I'm a control mama. I like to have my hands in everything. And that's just the way I am. And so maybe I'm going to think about that. I'm going to think about how can I 
explain, but then let her kind of make her own decision so that she can really live out the potential mistakes that lay before her. Because as in business too, I think it's when you make those mistakes that you learn so much. But as parents, we're always so afraid for our children, even when they're babies, right? You don't want them to fall on the ground. You don't want them to hurt their knee. You don't want the, and it's always trying to constantly protect them. And so now this is just on a financial level, the, the next thing, like you don't want them to fall. But I I think that's such great advice to give them that freedom to to fall because it's from the falling that they'll really learn those lessons like in at the core instead of just like oh yeah my mom told me one time yeah. not to do this or that no and and the other thing is because i have four kids and they're all different the other thing that you find that this is really cool okay because they'll make some mistakes but then they'll also They'll discover if, if you don't control them too much, if you let them kind of do their own thing, they'll find ways to use their money that you would have never even dreamed right. of. I have, mm-hmm. I have one of my kids is just so loving and grateful and wanting to give. She just gives away a lot of money. Okay. And it's cool because that's who she is. And then I have another one that's a big saver and I have another one that really enjoys nice things. And I think <laughs> that that's just part of their personalities and yeah. they have to letting them find that and discover that while they're still in the house is huge Mm -hmm. because otherwise they're out there trying to discover these things and they maybe don't have you there to help just kind of help them a little bit. Have you created a financial plan for your kids? What have you taught your kids about (laughs) investing and saving and all this stuff? Oh, I don't know. You know, just, just like y'all's kids, you probably, or anybody's kids, they don't listen to me, right? So, <laughs> no, I'm kidding. They're really great. And they do, they do listen more than they probably should. And I will say that they all read my book. So that was kind of cool. And it's kind of geared towards kind of a younger kind of starting out. I've got two that are married now and two that are in college. So they were kind of the right age. Yeah. kind of just read my book and they did do that. Mm-hmm. And we have a couple of them. Well, I guess all of them for the most part are saving on a regular basis. And I've helped them with that. And I've helped them when they get their first job, for instance, to try to figure out what to do from a benefit standpoint. And there, uh, Julie, I did go, go like super controlling on one of my mm-hmm. kids who got her mm-hmm. first her first job. And she's sitting at the kitchen table at our house. And, you know, this is her first real job. So she's really making money, has 401k and all that. She was like, oh, gee, what do I do on my 401k? I was like, hand it over. <laughs> So I just signed her right up for 10%. That's what you're doing right now. You don't have anything else that you need money for. And she's like, wow, but that's like, cause she just gotten a big raise. It's like, but that's all my raise. I was like, yep, sure is. (laughs) Well, That's so funny. I have those non-negotiables too. I'm like, yeah, we're not talking about this one. This is just how it's going to be. I don't care if I'm a bad parent or what judge me. I don't care. This is how it's going to be. That's so funny. But my mom told me that once, I think I mentioned this before on one of our other shows, but I had got, I had just gotten a raise when I was in my twenties at one of my jobs. And she's like, great, now go put it away in your retirement and pretend like Mm -hmm. you never got that raise. And I did. And that was something that I learned earlier on to help me try to build what I was doing and grow my wealth and all of that good stuff. So um, that's a great suggestion. Yeah. 
Yeah, cool. So I'm curious, after we talk about savings, we talk about budgeting, something that I've learned now as I've gotten older is that it's not just about saving and budgeting, but it's also about investing why we're here and and on the call. So I'm curious to learn a little bit more in your practice, what types of investments do you guys talk about? Is it deal mostly with stocks? Do you do any, any alternative investing? How What does that look like for your clients? Yeah, y'all stop me if we start getting really in the weeds, okay? Yeah. But, but yeah, here, obviously, I'm a stock guy. Y'all are real estate people. Mm-hmm. I'm mm-hmm. more of a stock guy. So for the most part, we're doing investing in common stocks, but we're doing it in a very diversified manner where we're spreading it all over from large companies to small companies, from U.S. companies to developed companies, international, et cetera, and so forth. So we're trying to take a scientific approach to it. I think that the mistake that a lot of people make when they get start doing stocks is they, I want to own Tesla before it went up 900% this year and things like that. And that's all exciting, but that's not really how it works. Okay. It's really, really boring. You know, the way, the right way to invest is like super boring. So it has to be spread out. You've got to take into account what we call risk adjusted return, right? Mm -hmm. That you're going to get a return based upon the risk that you're willing to take. And that doesn't matter whether that's a stock or whether that's real estate or any type of investment. That's just a truth. And if we have attainable goals, a plan, then we don't have to take that much risk usually. I mean, we can see that, okay, well, if we take a smart amount of risk and we do this on a regular basis, we can achieve what we want to achieve. So that, that's what we're doing most of the time. Investments will also have some real estate associated with them. I'm in Texas, so most of my clients own some type of real estate of some type. It's a really good asset class around here. And then good old boring bond. <laughs> bond is a tough one right now. Talking oh. about right now because yields have come significantly. Y'all know that. Everybody knows that because you can't make any money on money in the bank, right? A CD doesn't earn anything. Bonds don't earn anything. That's a real problem. And we're having to deal with that by actually not allocating near as much to the bond area because we believe that that's going to likely continue for a while and that bond is not going to be a very good place to be able to meet or beat inflation. And I, I could be wrong, but that's what we think. And so we've been moving that up into some buffered strategies, which now we're going to get into the weeds, but you know, where we're using actual option strategies inside exchange traded funds. So it's a very technical thing to be able to get maybe some market return up to some caps, Mm -hmm. but at the same time have some protection on the downside. Mm -hmm. So we're not all in stock, any good investment allocation, you got to have something aggressive, something moderate, something conservative, et cetera. That's Mm kind of what something that we're feeling like we're having to do right now to deal with just the really low, low yield environment that we're in. Are you able to create cash flow from the stocks that you have your clients invest in? Yeah, we are. And that's the other thing. A long time ago, well, I remember like my grandparents, when they retired, they had a bond portfolio they used for yield. And I remember it was, it was yielding like six, 7%, you know, okay. it was great. That was a long time mm-hmm. ago, but you can't do that now. That's the way mm-hmm. you used to do it. You used to yeah. basically convert everything over to bond to provide income. We don't do that anymore. Basically what we do is we kind of create the income as we go from the return that we get from the whole portfolio. That's why we have to say stay so spread out and diversified because then at least you have some different areas that are working for you 
-hmm. And then we just, we cashier. So a good asset managers kind of take your portfolio and they know what your income needs are on a monthly, yearly basis, whatever it may be. And then we just smartly try to create trades to provide that income. That makes sense. So funny. This is not not our world at all. I know Annie and I, we both don't play in the stock market at all. So interesting because in, in my world, I think cash flow and I think real estate. And when I think yeah. about stocks, I, I think more like long-term, 30-year horizon, cashing out over decades long. But it sounds like that may be more of like what you're talking about kind of is like day trading. Is that kind no, of? No, or no, no, not okay. at all. I mean, it's okay. more like, so we're looking at how these things are in rebalancing. We'll also, most stocks will have some type of dividend to them. We always have those in our portfolios go to cash so we can kind of manage them, either reinvest them manually mm-hmm. or use them as part of the need for income for the client. We're looking for different days when it makes sense. If we need to raise cash, for instance, mm-hmm. for a client, we may raise enough cash for several months at one time. Oh, gotcha. Um, it's, mm-hmm. it's a, I mean, it's a process. Mm-hmm. It's a it's a very important part of what we're doing. And that all kind of happens in the background mm-hmm. for our clients. But, um, but yeah, I was also going to say real estate is a great income piece. And we love it when our clients have some real estate that's providing that steady income, whatever it may be. They own a, they own a building, apartment complex deal that they're in or whatever it may be. Those are great income drivers. I think those are going to become more and more important because of the lackluster way that bonds potentially could perform in the coming mm-hmm. years. We'll get back to our conversation with Rob in just a minute. Have you been thinking about investing in real estate, but aren't sure you have the time or the desire to manage the investment? Perhaps you're afraid like we were that you'll make the mistake of choosing the wrong market or the wrong team and lose your entire investment. Well, that's exactly why we created the Good Egg Investor Club. We do the work of identifying solid real estate investment opportunities in the best markets around the country and then partner with you to acquire these investments and then we'll all share in the returns. We'll identify the growing markets, strong, experienced teams, and the solid deals. We do all the heavy lifting of managing the tenants and the renovations, and as a passive partner, you get to enjoy all the benefits of investing in real estate, monthly cash flow, long-term appreciation, and the ongoing tax benefits. When we first discovered passive investing through real estate syndications, we realized it fit perfectly into our busy lives. We could put our money to work for our families, work less, and get more time back in our days so that we could focus on what matters most and discover our true passion and purpose in life. We've now helped hundreds of people invest passively in real estate syndications and are seeing the positive impact it's had on their lives. We invite you to partner with us by joining the Good Egg Investor Club today so you can start putting your money to work for you and get more time back in your day because we know that when people have more time in their days, they can do the true work they were intended to do and the world will be a better place. To sign up for the Good Egg Investor Club, go to goodegginvestments.com slash invest and we'll take it from there. That's goodegginvestments.com slash invest. And now, back to our chat with Rob Schultz. 
So I'm curious to know if when you're doing the trading, even if it's not like day trading, but over a month period or months long period, what role, if anything at all, does technology play or has it played as we've sort of moved into this world of technology and AI and anything like that? Are you utilizing any kind of software or anything? I know you mentioned earlier that you're using software to make recommendations. Is that tied into what what we're talking about here in terms of like rebalancing and cashing out and a couple of months, anything like that? Oh yeah. No, we use computer programs to help us understand, run through all the clients' accounts and come mm -hmm. up with recommended trades on different mm -hmm. things. Oh yeah. It's very computerized. You know, used to use spreadsheets to try to uh -huh. calculate all that stuff, <laughs> but, but now the computer does it for you. Now, manually, we still actually execute those trades. Now, some places they don't. And mm -hmm. we do have some of the smaller accounts that we have here, we put at Betterment, which is a technology firm, mm -hmm. as you probably know. Mm -hmm. And all their stuff is very automated. It's pretty good. It does a pretty good job on smaller accounts. On the bigger accounts, you really have to put your eyes on it because there can be tax consequences and things like that that, that you want to manage. Would you say that it's in this new environment with like utilizing technology? Is it riskier? Is it safer? Is it more advantageous for us to be using this kind of technology to make investment decisions? What are your thoughts on that? Well, here I really feel like it's better. It mm -hmm. helps us be more efficient and that's just good. One of the things that we try to do is like some tax loss harvesting at the end of the year. Now with technology, it's a lot easier to do that. Mm -hmm. So most accounts get reviewed for tax loss harvesting, whereas just a few years ago, you'd have to have a pretty good size account for it to justify going through and doing stuff like that. I think it's good. There's certainly some parts of the industry that have gotten so automated that can kind of be scary just from the standpoint of maybe what that creates right. with, with mm -hmm. regard to pricing and liquidity and things like that. But so far, so good. Boy, yeah. we had some real tests this year mm -hmm. and the stock market itself came through in flying colors, had liquidity, did all the things that it needed to do. Interesting, the place that we've continued to have problems has been the bond market. Feds have... Treasuries had to step in and kind of provide some liquidity in a lot of those areas. The stock market's been strong. All right, Rob. Well, I could continue to tap your brain all day long about all of this fun stuff, but we're going to move into the investing for good impact round. We're going to okay. ask you a couple of questions around investing for good. So the first question is investing in yourself. So tell us one way that your investments are helping you to live a better life. Yeah. Investing in yourself for me and my clients where I see it more than I see anywhere else is vacations. I would say that if with a successful client, that's the biggest category of spending. I love it. I think it's important. And I know that Shelly, my wife, she always, even when things were really tough, because you know, we had some tough years there for a while, right? Trying to build a business. She's like, oh no, we're taking a family vacation. <laughs> um, and so that's what I think of when I think of investing in myself is those memories and time that you have going and seeing cool places. Yeah, yeah, definitely. It's not all about the hustle and the grind. And I think when you take those breaks and you take those vacations, it gives you the time and space to be able to reflect and really appreciate everything that you have. So I love that. That's great. All right. Second question is investing in others. So what is one investment strategy or life hack or something that you might be able to share with the audience that you think will help them catapult their investing journey to the next level? So in investing in others, let me clarify a little bit. So that's 
that's not, is that a, does you mean charitable or do you mean like investing in others? Oh no. Just like what is one like investment strategy or hack that you might be able to share with the audience? Like something that maybe you've learned along the way that we could share with them that'll help them kind of move the needle on their investing journey. Okay. Answer automate. Uh-huh. <laughs> I, it's it. I mean, that's, yeah. if there's one secret, that's the secret. Because yeah. yep. you do not need to be thinking about this every single time you have money available to invest. You yep. just need to make it where it just happens automatically. You're not even mm-hmm. thinking about it. Yep. It's just like what we were just talking about with mm-hmm. the 10%. You take it away. You don't see it. You don't know. You automate it. And behind the scenes where you're not paying attention to it, this thing is kind of growing and moving on its own. And just even in business, I think there's a ton of different ways that these days with all the technology and AI and things that people can definitely automate so much in their lives. Haven't perfected that yet, but I'm definitely working on it. But that's great advice. All right. Investing in the world. So what is one way that your investments are helping to make the world a better place. I think that's charitable to me. That's kind of what Mm -hmm. I think of is we live in a capitalist society, which Mm -hmm. I love because we're able to, man, if we work hard and smart and keep at it, then, you know, good things happen. Just this huge opportunity to be successful. And then like immediately you have to be grateful and thankful for what has been provided to you. Because when when you really go back and look, you start realizing, well, I was a really small part of that. (laughs) There were a lot of people that helped me. And so taking your money and going and trying to make it a better world. Personally, I would say do a lot of charitable work, but the one that I like the most right now is Zoe Ministries, which does work in Africa. It just Mm -hmm. seems to me that when you look at how far your dollar can go to really mm-hmm. providing um, just a big bang for your buck, mm-hmm. Africa still is is the place or any, mm-hmm. any third world country where there's so many basic necessities. Trying to get what that ministry does is try to get, get kids through a three-year process kind of educated and trained to be able to kind of be their own entrepreneurs, country that they live in. So that's what I think of. What a great way to pay it forward and help a new generation in need to really take control of their lives and to go out and learn about business and to create a better future for themselves. I love that because, you know, we always say that money doesn't change who you are, it amplifies who you are. And off, I'd say pretty much all the guests we've had on this show, they're building wealth, but they're not hoarding it for themselves. It's like they're building wealth so that they can give back, so that they can make an impact, so that they can create a difference in the world. So I love that, Rob. Well, tell the listeners, what is the best place that they can go to learn more about you and to grab a copy of your book? Tell them a little bit more about your book as well. You bet, Annie. So the book is called Thoughts on Things Financial. And I think you can buy it just about anywhere. Amazon, that's where everybody buys books now, but it's available in a number of places. You just have to search for it and grab it. And so it's, like I said, it's available anywhere. The book is basically, I tried to do something that everybody told me I was out of my mind to try to do. And they were kind of right because it almost drove me crazy. I tried to write a book in English where it didn't have all the technical terms and everything. There was just kind of an A to Z of, hey, you know, these are kind of some of the things that you need to know if you want to be financially successful. And we just go through all very broad, talk about vesting, stocks, talk about insurance. Boy, that's a boring chapter, by the way, but you have to know about it. Insurance is 
so critically important that, you know, we go all the way through all that estate planning, et cetera. So I think it's just a great book to just get a solid base of understanding. And then from there, you can use the internet and other things and financial planners and whatever to kind of really find your own plan. But with that base knowledge of understanding, that's what's lacking, you know, in so many people that I talk to is they want to talk about the difference between a Roth IRA and a regular IRA. But really, we need to get down to the basics of what's our plan? What are we trying to save for, et cetera? Then we can figure those things out. That's what the book's about. My company is Schultz Wealth. We're in Mansfield, Texas, not far from Fort Worth. And you can jump on my website if you want to see some stuff. I write all the time. So we have a blog post that we put out that you can be on that. Pretty active on Facebook. I have a group called Thoughts on Things Financial. And in that group, we just kind of talk about stuff, investing stuff and try to help each other out. Those are some of the ways that you can interact with me. And I, I love to love to hear from people that are, are looking to try to be financially successful. So anybody wants to reach me, just holler at me. Well, we'll have links to all of those in the show notes. And as for your philosophy on writing that book, so it's approachable and easy to understand in plain language for everyone, that is absolutely what we are all about as well. Rob Schultz, founder and president of Schultz Wealth. Thank you so much for sharing your wisdom with us today, Rob. Thanks, Annie. Thanks, Julie. Real honor to be on your show today. Thank you. You've been listening to The Life and Money Show, the number one podcast for people who, like you, are living a meaningful and intentional life by design, building true wealth, and making an impact in the world. For more resources, check out goodegginvestments.com and be sure to join the Life and Money Show community on Facebook. And if you got value out of the show, please subscribe and give us a five-star review so we can continue to bring you amazing new conversations.